when the egyptians and greeks were building massive architectural landmarks in the east the aryans were reciting hymns they did not bother to paint or build palaces they did not make pyramids in fact they left nothing but voice why the musings of the mystics a happy life is more about shedding layers than adding more they knew about this eternal secret at the indo-gangetic plain these nameless faceless thinkers knew about the transient nature of every aspect of life on earth unlike today's mankind they saw the folly in the celebration of ego or their ego was so profound that it swelled to engulf the entire existence they said anything alive eats and whoever eats gets eaten hence an individual's life was meant to be consumed anyway they saw life as a continuous process of sacrifice until the final breath dissolved into the eternal breath of nature to take the form of another spark of life another time another day sacrifice into the fire held the central station in their ways in one passage of early veda they said when one ran out of every material possession the object of sacrifice would be oneself the ultimate submission of ego the self into the fire such spirits roaming the indo-gangetic plain was not likely to set up imposing castles and forts to leave footsteps to remind the world of tomorrow about their existence such ethereal men and women would not be expected to keep note of daily mundane affairs like the first human who wrote something oh yes the first piece of writing was not a poem or any profound wisdom but a transaction of some amount of barley the first writer was an accountant not a poet he kept note of taxation matter whereas in the indo-gangetic basin an entire stretch of more than 1000 years left nothing beyond mythologies but such was the power of the mythologies that even after two millenniums mankind employs the messages underlying those mystic stories to unlock the confinement of misery and pain weaved by greed and desire I am writing the above text because the total absence of any circumstantial evidence of the existence of the people remains a puzzle unsolved even this day when at the same period Romans and Greeks were building huge spectacular architectural marvels to leave their footprints behind for the following generations to watch in awe and salute the Aryans in the east were celebrating the beauty of the eternal spirit Unlike those in the west they saw the whole fanfare of life around them as a transient manifestation of the almighty in a certain form more like waves rising and falling to rise in the shape of another wave no wave stands out on its own right only the ocean matters not the waves waves make sense only in connection with the endless expanse of the ocean as the mystic poet rumi said at a later date you are not a drop in an ocean you are the entire ocean in a drop hence they disregarded history or records 
they cared only for the way that brought bliss to life that is why perhaps we do not find massive forts or castles or elaborate townships naturally we do not find a sculpture or painting that captured a frozen moment of importance in history after all as i said history was of no significance history essentially is a collection of footprints and they cared nothing for such momentary identity they burned their egos and identities in the holy sacrificial fire the earliest existence of civilization was on the indus valley as we are familiar with the ultra modern townships at harappa and mohenjodaro and such imposing existence disappeared of the face of the earth at some point around 1300 bc we still do not know the reason it could be the great flood or the wildfire or the shattering earthquake or an attack from beyond the mountains but the indus valley civilization vanished into thin air indeed leaving behind elaborate townships and then and then a haze of blankness descended in the pages of history but bustling with hymns and stories we see nothing but we hear the somatic murmurs of hypnotic string of words who were speaking from where we keep looking but find nobody art being a visual form of expression we find no form of artwork from that period Of course Indus Valley did leave behind plenty of shapes and forms look them up in the internet and see the pictures to decide for yourself if you may call them an expression of art or mere craftsmanship plenty of potteries were found from Harappa and Mohenjo-daro as well as other ancient sites it is obvious that the potteries were designed to make them attractive for the household use even if they look good yet they are no way meant to be artworks as we understand today these are embellishment of commodities nothing more of course the numerous seals scattered across the valley seem to be reflection of some kind of writing system that could not be precisely deciphered so far by linguists or statisticians in recent days there had been revelations that such writing systems were aboriginal versions of tamil but such claims are yet to be accepted universally the purpose of such seals is also not clear until this day however these seals might have been acting as some kind of identity card or government stamp or even currency we do not know but it is unlikely that they were artworks of any kind they may be cryptic in look or beautiful at times but definitely served some kind of administrative or commercial purpose in the valley this period is voiceless for us today because they left only circumstantial evidence but no word unlike their successors the aryans on indo-gangetic plain like in modern days we can assume that some artist of that voiceless era did these combinations of images and texts on terracotta as expression of art but how come every piece of such expression is a combination of both image and text today only a certain form of abstract expressionism carries both images and texts not each and every artwork hence we can conclude that these seals were meant for more mundane purpose then comes the famous statues of indus valley for instance let us consider the priest king as it is called 
Nobody knows who he was really, but it looks like a statue of a man of authority in the society. This may be taken for an artwork, but there is not much to analyze its artistic aspects beyond it is a nice piece of work. Of course, there are historical inferences drawn from this statue. For instance, beard was a fashion in vogue. The rich might be putting on jewel-studded cloaks in floral prints and so on. The half-closed mediative expression on the face of the man seemed to convey that the king was actually a high priest. But all such inferences are based on wild guessing with no other evidence to second such possibilities. In any case, apart from this, the most sensational statue ever found in Indus Valley is the dancing girl. The dancing girl captured the fascination of historians through centuries. More than its beauty, the 4.1 inches tall bronze statue hinted at several hidden aspects of the Indus Valley civilization. The knowledge and skill of foundry to work on metal as well as the fashion of putting on bangles and so on. The identity of the girl is sensationalized by the British archaeologists when they named it the dancing girl. There is actually no reason to assign that name. The girl in the statue could have been just a queen, a consort, a deity or even a god with a stick in hand which went missing over time. But still, she acquired the role of a dancing girl. Perhaps it is because the British archaeologists took fancy of the notch girls, dancing girls, the wife or Devdasi traditions in India among the rich and the elites. Of course, the curious posture of the girl did suggest a possibility of breaking into a frenzy of rhythmic dance. If you are interested to get a graphic picture of the lives at Mohenjo-daro, please read my novel Far Beyond the Dead End. I had spent almost a decade trying to get a comprehensive idea of their lifestyle, eating habits, rituals, and man-woman relationships. I visited several sites of the ancient civilization. Of course, most of it falls in the present-day Pakistan, but I could arrive at only a collection of countless dots. Connecting the dots required a good deal of imagination. I did that and wrote that novel. This novel will bring the missing civilization alive before your mind's eye. But as described before, history ceased breathing suddenly. Roughly since 1500 BC, circumstantial evidence of human habitation stopped showing up. Needless to mention that no artwork emerged from beneath layers of soil. Interestingly, paintings or to be precise, frescoes peep through the window of time only after more than 200 years of death of the Buddha. Since Buddha's revelations stemmed partly from the world view of Upanishad, the very aim of discarding the ego was a pivotal point in early Buddhism too. The way of dropping the trains of thought did not allow a room for past or present. dropping of the past demolished the identity hence the ego dismissing the future erased ambition and desire living in the moment relieved one from the bondage of materialistic tug of war but at the same time the mortal body of flesh and bones qualifications and certificates gained in the past did not matter too hence even buddha as an individual did not stand for any specific attention In fact at a later date in Zen tradition when a disciple is asked 
what will you do if you see the buddha blocking your way the reply expected is i shall slash the buddha by the sword and move ahead so until 200 years of buddha's death painting with likeness was not advised for the followers because portrait or statue of some individual meant paying respect and attention to a particular form and shape in flesh and bones in fact some experts hold the view that early buddhist art was aniconic for instance the bodhi tree was painted or sculpted to represent the enlightenment of buddha However, arrival of Alexander the Great and later his army left behind infused the Greek spirit into the Indian context. At a later date, further impact was made by bhakti traditions in Hinduism. Hence entered statue of Buddha in Indian art. I would like to elaborate the first flash of artworks during Buddhist era. It all began in Sanchi. And why? Why in Sanchi of all places? Because Sanchi was the birthplace of the wife of the emperor Ashoka and it was also the venue where the emperor got married but how is the emperor connected to the earliest display of artistic spirit of the buddhists after all isn't art supposed to be a free spirit free from all mundane cobwebs free from commercial humdrums not really as i explained in each chapter Emperor Ashoka after the bloodbath in the war of Kalinga became averse to violence in all terms and found peace in the ways of the Buddha he became a buddhist he was one of the best rulers of history of mankind who employed a perfect blend of religion and politics to bring harmony in society he had launched an elaborate mission to set up a full-fledged buddhist monument blended with his own icons as the ruler The Ashoka pillars with inscriptions of his messages stand side by side with the stupa under which rested the relics of Buddha. A wide range of beautiful reliefs describing the earlier animal and human lives of Buddha as described in Jataka tales and the life of the Buddha in person. Now the question is why this grand initiative was taken? What was the driving force behind it? Was it pure artistic passion or something else more mundane that we refuse to attach with the novel act of creativity? For that, we must look at the socio-political backdrop of the period. Until Buddhism appeared in the Indian subcontinent, it was the land of Hindu spirit. The priest community and thereby the Brahmins were powerful enough to pull the strings of social protocols and lives. At the same time there were kings the kshatriyas brahminical claim on divinity was naturally stronger and often competed with that of the kings hence the kings could not piggyback the brahmins to get close to divinehood they were competitors coca-cola and pepsi cannot promote each other and get elevated as a brand in such case either will die But Buddhism did not come with materialistic aspirations of ruling the mass or controlling the lives of people. It came with the message that hinted at the key of salvation from the bondage of earthly suffering. Hence, there was no contest between kings and the Buddhist sages. Rather, they complemented each other with the possibility of attaining higher station in the eyes of the subjects of the land if the king could associate himself with the Buddha. 
Moreover, there was the business community, the merchants and traders. They too found Buddhism and Jainism as a choice of religion better suited for their purpose. The idea of non-violence saved the animals that suited their trade. Hence, business community too supported Buddhism and saw to it that it survived among people. At the turn of 300 BC, kings as well as merchants grabbed Buddhism as a lifeline to save their own interests. On the other hand, consider Hinduism for a while. As I explained in the beginning of this chapter that the Vedic people of early days had no drive for building monuments or living footsteps. Hence, they did not paint or built palaces. But their idea and thoughts were transmitted through generations after generations. Over a very long period, the face of Vedic ideologies transformed radically with newer and newer scriptures conceived due to the assimilation of cults not originally belonging to Hinduism. And the social fabric was paralyzed by the shackles of caste system dominated by the Brahmin. All said and done, Hinduism was already deeply entrenched into the spirit of society through more than a thousand years. There was no need to take any special marketing initiative to spread its wings. It was already there. Whereas the new entrant, Buddhism, needed a vigorous push to make its way into the souls of the people. And for the reasons mentioned, Buddhism had the backing of the kings and the merchants. Well, who had the money and manpower? Of course, the kings and the merchants. Imagine, when a new powerful brand arrives in the market dominated already by an old product for a very long time, only way to establish the new brand is to pump huge and aggressive marketing campaign so that the old fancy is replaced by the new fancy rather quickly. Or else, the halo of the existing brand would eventually drive the new one to an ignominious demise. That is why Buddhism was launched by the kings and merchants in massive gusto. After all, the populace was not much literate. Most of them could not read or write. Hence, the way to educate them about Buddhism was through images. The narrative relief works of Sanchi served that purpose. Jataka and Buddha's recent life. And who financed the missions? The king, merchants and common folks too. In fact, the Mauryan craftsmen did the relief works. By the way, Varaha Mihira tells us in his Compendium of Art and Architecture, Brihat Samhita, that the social rank of an artist was no more than a lowly musician or a dancing girl in the context of the time. But still, at this stage, Buddha was not yet represented in human form. Perhaps the original spirit of Buddhism was still pulsating. Buddha's statue began to appear few centuries later due to a multitude of reasons. One was the influence of bhakti spirit in Hinduism, where elaborate Vedic rituals were replaced by an alternative path of pure devotion to the Almighty. That way, an individual needed a deity of himself. Hence, the way of salvation transformed from a community affair to an individual drive. One needed an idol, a statue. Around these times, cracks also began to show in the Theravada Buddhism, that is the original form of Buddhism. Mahayana sect splintered away that idolized the Buddha. All this happened at a time 
when there was a greek population in existence in the western part of the indian subcontinent they were the people left by alexander the great to rule the land he won when he invaded india the massive buddha statues clearly reflect greek style of realism and likeness at this point i'm tempted to mention that alexander's successor in india minander who ruled gandhara for a while had converted to buddhism the appeal of buddhism did not only drench the hindu kings but the greeks too and what was the religion of the invading greeks anyway no not christianity it was the earlier pagan tradition of multiple gods as well as idolatry and alexander left behind a substantial part of his army and its generals the generals eventually ruled some part of the western part of the subcontinent of india the prevailing religion of the mass was buddhism many greek army generals turned buddhists but thanks to their original root coming from paganism they craved for a physical representation of the buddha it looks like this greek influence reflected on the certain appearance of sculpture in the western form in the indian subcontinent let us look at the statue of bodhisattva made in 2nd century ce you can look it up in the internet remember this is not the buddha but the buddha to be bodhisattva but still the kind of embellishment with jeweled necklace headgear and mustache makes the bodhisattva look more like a king or a prince than a wandering sage i would like to conclude that such image was a projection of the king himself who might have commissioned the project to the artist or let's say craftsman of those days the other curious aspect of this sculpture is the garb of the bodhisattva it is nothing but the kind of robes worn by the greek philosophers please check the photograph of the sculpture of socrates to see the similarity hence it is evident that the influence of the kings and the riches enabled the birth and thriving of buddhist art in sanchi and elsewhere in the following centuries as we progress in timeline we encounter the first appearance of highly superior paintings in the form of art on the walls of caves in gandhara these caves were the abodes of buddhist sages and also used as assembly halls for the community until buddhism happened there was no need for large groups of people to gather under the same roof for religious reasons need for a large communal space arose with the spread of buddhism stupa and vihara came up in fact during the first century bc several projects were taken up with subscriptions raised from the whole community of followers as well as patrons like kings and merchants contributors might have included quotations too we do not know for sure but they probably were embraced by the buddhists because such sections were excluded from the brahminical rituals in the first century bc several monasteries were founded near the wealthy towns like gandhara or nalanda to accommodate the growing number of sages it was affordable for the buddhists to set up their monastic complexes in the caves among living rocks it was a durable solution too compared to the constructed ones on the other hand the hindus did not have compulsion to attend temple services it was not part of hindu tradition to attend religious discourses in large numbers hence such venues were not in demand for the hindus 
As a result, for the Hindus, there was no reason to look for caves in the mountains to accommodate living space. That's why Hindus did not have rocks in their disposal to create any painting or fresco. Whereas the Buddhists did relief works on the outside of their monastic complexes and painted on the inner walls of the caves. For obvious reasons, painting on the outer wall was not sensible due to vagaries of weather. Even if they might have done so, we would not know. Rain and storm would have withered such fanfare of pigments away into the annals of history. In Ajanta and Elora, we find many caves adorned with beautiful paintings describing various aspects of Buddhism. The purpose was the same, to educate the numerous newfound followers about its tenets. We must remember that such artworks, of course if we call them artworks, were funded by a very defined community of kings, merchants and devotees. The rise of Buddhism took place until the existence of Gupta dynasty in 7th century CE. After that, Buddhism began to lose its footing on Indian soil due to various factors. One of the main reasons was the nature of Mahayana Buddhism itself. With time, Mahayana Buddhism became more ritualistic just like Hinduism. The difference between the two blurred. The priest community started to hit success in securing the king's patronage. To top it all came the onslaught of Huns who destroyed Nalanda and other sacred Buddhist sites. What remained in a while in India was a version of Hinduism that was not the same as how it all began during the era of sacrifice 2000 years ago. This changed face of Hinduism had everything in itself, starting from the ancient sacrificial spirit to the materialistic barter system arrangement with chosen deities. In such an environment, Hindu Brahminical class channelized the patronage of the kings to them, that was erstwhile running into the kafir of the Buddhists. Hence began the aggressive promotion of Hinduism through spectacular architecture. Such architecture emerged in terms of development of temples. I shall not discuss about the various aspects of temple architecture here because that is not the purpose of the podcast. It is enough to mention the undisputable fact that marvels happened in the temple architecture. The legendary relief works on the walls of the temples never fade to mesmerize the world even this day. But a question remains like a gaping hole. For more than 500 years between the decline of Buddhism and the arrival of the Mughal, paintings of any significance did not happen or does not stand as living testimony. Of course, one major reason is the absence of paper. Paper entered India with Islam. Hence, until then, even if any painting was done anywhere other than the stones, would have perished. But we do not find much evidence of painting on stone during this period. We do not know why. When the art of painting already reached a level superior to that in the West during Buddhist time, there was no reason to think that the artists in India were incapable of painting during this period. But they did not paint on stone. One reason could be the nature of Hindu temples. Painting on the outer wall was not sensible because the pigment would be subjected to rough weather conditions. That is why the outer walls carry relief works only. But the inner sanctum, which was the deity's abode, was dark and plain. 
there was no reason to paint on such wall which remained veiled with muted glow of a lamp or rather filled with shadowy darkness therefore we are left with no way to find if people painted and what they painted during this phase however even if painting might not have been of any importance during the ancient days of veda yet this did not hold true later as time passed by in mahabharata we find clear indication of portraits in vogue in several hindu scriptures like kama sutra that comes with a disputable period of origin yet early enough detailed guidelines of various aspects of painting had been described that stands valid even this day in totality in fact such description of six pillars of painting shows that the artists of the period knew much more about art than the artists of greece or egypt it is now time for me to get back to my point that art did not thrive because of unbound passion and non materialistic desire to create had it been so some artist or the other would have sculpted something other than buddha's life or past life on stone but nobody did at least some artists would have painted just a sky or a forest not connected with the ventures of buddha or krishna or some other divinely figure all of them painted or sculpted only what they were paid for they mastered the skill of creating the best of the images or reliefs because that brought them food their creative art was directly connected to their hunger and desire to get prosperous even if we feel that the creative spirit of art is divorced from the mundane ruthlessness of materialism it is not so in reality art survived just because some people wanted to earn their bread by painting a mango like a mango if the buyers wanted so crudeness of my observation may feel derogatory to the novelty of art but i say this in relation to those who must produce art because a certain form of art sells in the market like today's buddha or horse or benares ghat in indian context i would call them craftsmen not artists if we call such craftsmen as artists then indeed art is nothing more than a foster child of materialism let us take a pause here we shall get back to the indian context again later in the meantime listen can you hear the distant knocking on the door renaissance is at the doorway of the west in the next episode we are going to meet the grand revolution in art during the renaissance in the west stay tuned <laughs>